Good morning. Good morning. Just want to start us with prayer this morning. God, we just welcome your presence. We continue to just crave and desire your presence here with us. We need your spirit to open our eyes to reveal Jesus Christ. And we entrust our souls and our hearts to you this morning. Would you work on them through the the speaking of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This week, I, I had just completed an intense business meeting. I was in a city I hadn't been in before. My Uber app wasn't working as I was trying to get back to the airport. My brain was swirling, and a man approached me. As I was looking at my phone, I could tell out of my peripheral that he was coming up to me, and he was clearly a homeless man. As I looked more closely, I could see his arm was wrapped haphazardly with a plastic trash bag. His teeth had the telltale signs of meth use. He asked me for help getting food. He pointed out his arm under the plastic, the flesh of which had started to rot from using a drug referred to as trank or zombie drug. I recognized it because I'd recently read a New York Times article about how this drug is flooding the streets of most major cities, and it's incredibly addictive, and how it violently destroys people's bodies, leading, in many cases, to amputation of arms and legs. This article I'd read broke my heart, and I wanted to take the love of Jesus to these poor, addicted people. Yet, to my shame in that moment, this man was just an uncomfortable distraction. In my tidy business suit, trying to negotiate a contract, trying to catch an Uber, trying to fly home, I had more important things on my mind. I graciously declined to help. I said, sorry, I'm trying to get to the airport and I don't have time. Good luck. He disappeared. Didn't hit me until I was sitting at my gate, waiting to board, how distracted I was from loving this man, from having a caring thought for his soul, from having the eyes of Jesus on what's important. My response to this man, it may have been rational under the circumstances of my day, but my response was also a far cry from how Jesus responds to desperate people. The story we're looking at today, it's, it's an amazing story of how Jesus responds to desperate and broken people. It has two parts. First, how Jesus reacts to desperate people. And secondly, how he pursues us. So let's read together from Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since he could not 
get him to Jesus, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging a hole through it and lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So how, how did Jesus respond to desperate people coming to him? First, Jesus was interruptible. Jesus is well known by this point in Mark 2. He's been a viral sensation. By word of mouth, his fame has spread and his public appearances have started to get swamped by large crowds. The makeup of these crowds included some skeptics, some religious opposition, some curious onlookers, some eager listeners, some people that just wanted something from Jesus. For some context, they had gathered in Capernaum, which is the northeast of Nazareth, in Jesus' home, it says. It says in verse 1 that he had come home. It's not clear whether this is actually Jesus' home, his parents' home, or just the home base for his ministry, but the point is that this was a familiar place. Jesus' family was there. His neighbors who had known Jesus for some time were probably there. This is something that occurred to me freshly as I was preparing how familiar some of these people would have been with Jesus. In a small seaside village in Galilee, Jesus was just the carpenter's son, just their neighbor, just their brother. But then the rumors started growing. John the Baptist heralded his coming, saying in Matthew 3.10, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus was preaching both amazingly good news and sobering judgment, teaching with authority, demonstrating authority over demons and diseases, as we've seen, gathering a misfit band of disciples and followers. This was not the one that people had dismissed as gentle and irrelevant. There was a growing wave of influence, of impact, of fame. Could this be the promised one? Could this be the king that God had promised to his people? Jesus was certainly talking like it. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. So the crowds had now come and they were growing rapidly. Surely the most important thing in that moment was establishing the kingdom, addressing the large crowds of people, swaying their hearts and minds, reaching people with influence to carry the message of his kingdom further and faster. Then, some dull thudding overhead. 
Some dirt started to fall, some grass and sticks, first in little bits, then in clumps. The crowd cleared spaces as larger pieces of hardened mud fell from the ceiling of his home. For five, ten minutes maybe, a group of four impertinently determined men excavated a hole in the roof of his home. Six feet wide, three feet long, there was some risk, but they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. Then on a straw mat, the four men lowered their paralyzed friend down to Jesus' feet in front of the crowd. I don't know if you've ever been to a show or a sporting event where there's a heckler or a, a streaker, but they are an interruption to the event. They're not the reason you paid hundreds of dollars to come. Everyone cheers when security tackles them. <laughs> I expect the crowd were probably hoping these guys would get tackled by the disciples. This was an interruption from the main event. The expected response would have been for Jesus to say, hey, the people that showed up here on time are in front. No cutting the line. Are you going to pay for the hole in my roof? But Jesus in that moment showed by his actions and words that nothing was more important than this paralytic who had broken into his house and interrupted what he was saying. It's actually crazy to think that none of what Jesus had said up until that moment was documented. All it says was he was preaching the word to them. The word made flesh, speaking the very words of God, was not as important for us to know in that moment as what he said and did next for the paralyzed man. Son, he starts. When we approach Jesus with everything, relying totally on his kindness to receive us and not to reject us, when we have nothing to offer, but we approach him with impertinence and faith, Jesus looks at us and calls us son or my child. When we carry nothing but our physical and spiritual deformities to his feet, he calls us son, daughter, my child. More than the detail of what Jesus was preaching, God wants us to know how he treats desperate people who just interrupt him. Jesus is never too busy to stop what he's doing for those that reach out to him in faith. Don't delay in approaching him. He does not reject desperate, broken, and hurting. He is full of great compassion. He is interruptible. Second, Jesus, Jesus addresses our greatest need. The next shock immediately follows what he says. Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if the paralytic understood the impact of this. The impact of that statement wasn't small. This is the first time we see Jesus reaching into someone's soul and showing his reign and power over sin. To this point, we've seen him demonstrate the kingdom's authority over demons, the kingdom of darkness. We see his authority and kingship over diseases and sickness. But this is the first time we see his authority explicitly over sin. Our relationship with sin is one of association. 
Through Adam, all humanity has shared guilt and condemnation. Romans 3 says there's no one who does good. Our relationship with sin is also as a slave. Sin rules over us and drags us around, demanding our servitude and ultimately our very lives. Our relationship with sin is also a symbiotic one. Sin feeds us the addictive poison pill, and we continue to amplify its effects in the world when we serve it. Apart from His intervention, our sin separates us from the holy presence of God for eternity. But Jesus is the God of hope. Luke 1 describes the thunderous arrival into Jesus into the world this way. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. To the paralytic and to us, he says, My child, your sins are forgiven. He takes away our association with sin. We're no longer sons of Adam. We're sons of God. He takes away our bondage to sin. We're no longer slaves. We're free. John 8 says, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He takes away our dependency on sin from our former life. We no longer need sin. We are given a new heart, a new life, and now have new desires. All of that is wrapped up in that beautiful statement, Son, your sins are forgiven. Forgiving sin and loving sinners was not the inconvenient side hustle of Jesus. It was not a distraction from his primary mission. It was, the thing, it was not the thing he also could do while he was doing more important things. It was the thing. It was the point. It was the reason he came at all and took on human flesh and suffering. It was the greatest sign of his kingdom coming. And only he could do it. There was no priest, no rabbi, no man or beast that could take sin away. Only Jesus. Our primary need was for the ransom from our sin, and his primary mission was to ransom us. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus in Gethsemane said this of his impending sacrifice for sin, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. It was for the salvation of sinners, the forgiveness of sinners, the acceptance and redemption and paying the ransom for sinners. This was the very reason he came. Every leper that Jesus healed still died. Everyone who Jesus fed got hungry again and eventually died. Jesus gave lame people healthy legs that stopped working eventually. Blind people were given sight and eventually those eyes closed in death. The only thing that Jesus left for those lame, leprous, hungry, diseased, and blind people was the eternal forgiveness of sin. He offered forgiveness of our sin 
He offers forgiveness of sin this morning through his, the mercy of the cross. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, your sins like scarlet shall be as white as snow. This is our greatest need. It was the greatest need of this paralytic. And God meets this need through Jesus. Son, your sins are forgiven. Though our practical and physical needs are temporary, and one day unimaginable joy and physical delight will displace all human suffering for those whose sins are forgiven, Jesus doesn't despise our present weakness and suffering. Jesus can also address our practical and our physical needs. If I was the paralytic, I expect in my humanity I might have been a little disappointed at Jesus' opening line. The Bible doesn't tell us, but if you had lived a life of total dependency on the charity of others for the simplest tasks of feeding, washing, relieving yourself, then hearing of Jesus, you convince your friends to carry you up on a roof, digging through that roof that you would no doubt have been on the, the hook to fix, being lowered down and setting yourself up to be potentially despised by butting in line, then I expect you might be disappointed with anything less than what you came for, to be physically healed. Then, son, your sins are forgiven, he said. Okay, Jesus, sin, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. But I'm sure you know why I'm really here. Give me the good stuff. Jesus is compassionate with us in our weakness, and he doesn't spiritualize our pain and suffering. Where he could say, suck it up. You'll have eternity where this will all be made right. He instead weeps with us as we suffer. He has compassion on the crowds. He does feed them. He does heal them. He does restore them. We see his dominion over sickness, weakness, demons, and death. And these are the signs of his kingdom coming. He tells us even to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He tells us to ask for that restoration and renewal of all things and to watch the kingdom of heaven break into our lives. Expect the kingdom to break through that thin veil separating heaven and earth as it did for this paralytic. God cares about physical and practical things. But what stirred Jesus' heart to act on behalf of these men and the paralytic? Our passage says that he saw their faith. Their faith that worked itself out with a lot of effort. These men were probably sweaty, Dusty, dirty, strained, and tired from carrying their paralytic friend through the town, up on the roof, making a hole and lowering him down to Jesus. Yes, pray for, pray for your physical and practical needs, but supplement your prayers of faith with virtue. Let our sweaty, dusty, dirty effort be the expression of our faith. Obviously, as you heard the story that I shared as I started the message, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you this or charging you with this from a, a high moral perch. I'm preaching this to myself and in weakness saying that we're in this together. Lord, help us. 
God is willing to break through our physical needs, but from this story, we, got, we see that God's mechanism to break through is in the acts and the deeds of faith of his people. Okay, so now all of this can sound a lot like the lion's share of the work falls to us to bring our sin and our needs before Jesus, and once we've done our part, that he will respond. But that's why we need the whole Bible to inform our understanding of him. Jesus doesn't sit back and wait for our for us to get ourselves together, to work up our faith, to come to him. He also, he also pursues us. So we're going to read this next section, and this shows us how Jesus runs after us. Okay. From Mark 2.13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were with the Pharisees saw him, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. So first, how does Jesus pursue us? He comes to us. In the seaside town of Capernaum, Jesus was walking and teaching a large crowd beside the lake. Being near the lake afforded some natural amplification for his voice. But then there's this weird visual. Jesus is walking and teaching a large crowd. Can you imagine if all of us filtered out to the outside and I was trying to do this message acoustically and teaching you and walking? This creates a bit of an awkward logistical challenge. Was Jesus walking backwards like a tour guide? Was the, was the crowd walking in front of them? Were they all walking backwards? Was he shouting over his shoulder? But it says that he was walking. Why does this passage say that he's walking? We, get to, we start to get to see what was happening because at the end of his walk is this tax booth. Which, considering the oddness of walking and teaching, it appears to be his destination. Now, he's at the head of a crowd that collectively would have despised taxes. The more than just hating parting with their money or the fact that the money went to paying the Roman army that was occupying Israel at the time, this tax booth was occupied by a fellow Jew, a traitor. Someone that had sided with Rome against his own people, a weakling, an outcast. The tax collectors were also notoriously corrupt, skimming money for themselves off the top of the taxes. This crowd would likely have expected Jesus to seize this moment in front of the tax booth to teach about corruption, about the coming kingdom that would destroy those that opposed it, to teach about the commandments, about stealing, to dress down this evil IRS agent. (laughs) But instead, Jesus looked into that tax booth and said, follow me. 
There was no indicator that Levi was interested in Jesus or that he had done anything interesting to draw Jesus to him. Yet, with those two shocking words, Jesus unlocked the prison of this lonely tax booth and Jesus freed him with his love. Only when we believe what Jesus, that Jesus means it when he says, it's for this very reason that I came, will this story make any sense. This would have been among the most despised, hated, corrupt, sinful sinners that Jesus could have found. Christ pursued Levi with love and acceptance. This was not the exception. This is why he came. Second, Jesus seeks relationship with us. The story continues building this crescendo of mercy. Following the call of Levi, he starts dining with them and a group of other tax collectors and sinners. Many of them, it says. To the other disbelief and dismay of the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples were dining with many tax collectors and sinners. This was an intimate social environment. Dining and reclining at table. Daniel Aiken in his commentary on Mark describes those at the dinner party this way. These people were alienated and rejected. These are people who needed God's grace and knew it. There was no doubt that the famous young rabbi would, or there was no doubt, they were no doubt stunned, sorry, that the famous young rabbi would share table fellowship with them. And they weren't the only ones. The religious leaders shared their amazement. But while the tax collectors and sinners were humble and thankful, the religious hypocrites were offended and angered. Are you a sinner? You are invited into relationship with Jesus. Are you offended by the sinners at the table receiving the warm welcome of Jesus? Consider the twofold invitation today. Come to Jesus with your sin, like the tax collectors and like the sinners, and humbly receive his welcome. Or lay down your prideful self-righteousness, unlike the Pharisees, and instead humbly receive his invitation. Lastly, the Pharisees were concerned for themselves being corrupted by association with those that were unclean, those that were sinners, and, and so they remained self-righteously aloof. They kept a healthy distance to avoid the sin or the association rubbing off on them. They imposed this same expectation on Jesus and on his disciples. They accused them by saying that they were accepting guilt and sin by association. Yet then Jesus uses this beautiful language to describe himself. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus heals those that he pursues. Jesus is such an unexpected king, isn't he? His holy reign is one of incredible mercy. He's not corrupted by the diseases and the brokenness of his subjects. Our physician king is the antidote. He's the cure. He's the resurrection and the life. You would think a doctor was incompetent or evil if they avoided those that were injured or sick while they had the means or ability to cure them. Jesus says he's the great physician. He is drawn to the sick 
because he is the cure for both our greatest need and our practical needs. He doesn't run from our need. Our need stirs his healing power. As I close, I want to pray the third commandment over us. That we don't take the Lord's name in vain. This could be another whole message. But I feel like the Lord wants me to challenge us in this way on this subject. We often think of taking the name of the Lord in vain as speaking his name as a curse. While that certainly is true, I want to offer that we also take his name in vain when we carry the label of Christian but do not look like Christ, whose name we bear. It is vain, futile, pointless, trivial, inconsequential to be associated with Christ or to take his name without his character. Let's not take his name inconsequentially. The reason that Jesus came was to lay down his life for sinners. It was to seek and save the lost and the sick. We who bear his name and his image, we Christians, cannot follow Jesus without doing the same. Monument, let's carry his name with purpose, with action, with faith. In the story I shared to start my message, I shared honestly that I did not look like my Savior to that desperate man that approached me. But the one that says, Son, your sins are forgiven, reminds me and reminds us today that we are still his children, that he is still our healer. I, we, can go forward anew with the name of Jesus as a banner over our lives to lovingly pursue the broken the hurting, the sinner, as he has done for us. Let's do that together as sons and daughters who are pursued and called by our loving and unexpected King. Let's pray.